Welcome to Voices of Care, the podcast series from New Cross Healthcare that seeks to get to the heart of the issues facing the health and social care sector in the UK by talking to leaders who are truly enabling the healthcare workforce of the future. I'm Sahel Mirza. General practice is the very foundation of the NHS, according to reports from many commentators, yet it's facing a crisis of workload, workforce shortages and wellness challenges. How do we solve those challenges? My guest today is perhaps a better place than anyone else to help me answer that question. Professor Camilla Hawthorne is a distinguished clinician, awarded an MBE for services to general practice back in 2017, and is the chair of the Royal College of General Practitioners. Professor Hawthorne, it's a privilege to welcome you to Voices of Care. Thank you for your time. Thank you for inviting me. It's our privilege. Um, I want to tackle that uh, question of crisis. The GP community has been under the spotlight. Um, There are reports showing that perhaps we could be one in four posts short in less than a decade. Workload is increasing. Can you set out the scale of this crisis? Because the very existence of the NHS, according to your own commentary, uh, depends on it. So I think we are approaching an existential phase, really, for general practice and, of course, then for the NHS too, because 90% of the NHS's work is conducted in the community by by GPs and their teams. Um, For the last um, 10 or 20 years, we've been forecasting that this is coming. We've seen uh, waves of doctors gradually getting older um, without them being replaced um, enough by younger doctors. So I think it must have been at least 20 years ago that we were forecasting GP shortages in the Welsh Valleys where I work um, as groups of doctors who were then in their 50s were starting to think about retiring. So it is no real surprise that we've got to where we are now and has been made a great deal worse by the fantastically increased workload that has come upon us really since um, the the end of the lockdown, the the COVID-19 lockdown. Uh, Workload just suddenly increased exponentially, way beyond anything we'd even experienced before COVID. And as a result, I think a lot of GPs are leaving the profession early. Um, Even though the numbers of trainees has gone up, GPs are leaving faster than the younger ones are coming in at the the other end. Um, And as a result, over the last two, three years, we're at least 850 50 full-time equivalent GPs less in England than we were um, you know, a couple of years ago. And that trend is continuing, which is why it's so worrying. The other worrying thing about it is, of course, that these are people who are at the height of their powers. They're in their late, uh, mid to late 50s. They've been GPs for 20, 30 years. They um, are needed to provide mentorship for the younger ones. And yet they're so fed up uh, with the uh, constant workload that they have the barrage um, of, of work that they're being faced with that they are leaving um, early. And that is a real, real shame. Absolutely. I think your own report um, from last year highlighted that perhaps 42% of GPs were considering leaving in the in the next uh, five years. And the government, of course, are on record. Uh, they've made a, a, a pledge, a manifesto pledge to increase uh, GP numbers by 6,000 uh, by 2025. The numbers I've seen highlight what you've said, a reduction of over 2,000 GPs since 2015, workload increasing by 9%. How important are the plans for a workforce strategy and a recovery plan for the uh, Mm. general practice going to be to make sure we stem that flow? 
So I think this is a real opportunity for the government to put its money where its mouth is and actually provide us with hope that um, we will be receiving strengthening of our workforce um, because really the bottom line problem is that we don't have enough GPs. We're not adequately resourced, we're not adequately funded. Um, I think we take about 9% of the NHS budget 10, 12 years ago, it was 11%, so it's gone down. And it should be at least 11%, if not higher. After all, you know, times have moved on since 10, 12 years ago. So um, hopefully the um, access recovery plan and the workforce plan will give us some help. Um, but of course, the devil will be in the detail. And certainly we have not yet had the privilege of reading these plans. So we don't know exactly what's in there. Although, of course, there have been various hints dropped. But until we actually see the devil of what's on offer and also what the government wants in return, uh, because I'm very worried that um, the amount of emphasis that's being put on um, access to general practice um, might actually give the killer blow to general practice, which would be awful. Yeah, I guess we'll have to wait and see uh, when the plan is uh, unveiled. There's obviously been a dramatic change in the last 12 months in terms of the landscape of uh, health and social care. Um Integrated care systems have now a statutory footing. We've had the Fuller Stockdale report looking at general practice and promoting, among many things, uh, collaboration and integration. Just wanted to see whether you're seeing some strands of hope in terms of that collaboration in primary care for the GP community. Yes, um, although I think it's patchy. So there are 42 ICBs in England. And you have to bear in mind, of course, that that doesn't extend to the other devolved nations. So in Wales, we're talking about clusters which are not funded in anything like the same way as ICBs, similar position in Scotland. So um, in England, then, amongst the ICBs, I think some are ahead of the curve, some are lagging. We need a way of knowing what's going on in all of them. Um, but certainly, we've had some really nice examples of good work being done in several um, so far. Um, I know that um, Cheshire and Merseyside have produced a document on primary secondary care workload shifting um, and as to how that could be done equitably and in a way that actually keeps the responsibility with the with the, with the medical person who's ordered the test um, that they want the patient to have. Um, I know that in Surrey um, around Frimley, uh, the doctors there are working together um, with digital technology um, to look at patients who are particularly vulnerable and then offering help to those patients to try and avoid emergency admissions um, and that's also very exciting. So yes we are seeing glimmers of um, really good work taking place but of course again we need to be sure that that happens um, right across the country and not just in some uh, particularly good hotspots. No, absolutely. And I think the timing of this is important because you've obviously become the chair uh, in November 2022, uh, three-year placement there. And there's also been a new strategy that's been published or agreed um, uh, by the Royal College. Can we focus on priority two, which of course is the workforce challenger crisis, workload, and it's a workload crisis as well. Can we expand upon that? Because people talk about the workforce, the sheer numbers, we know about that, but the workload uh, issue is quite important too. It is. So, I mean, I think for me, it's actually priority number one, because unless we can do something about the workforce workload crisis, um, GPs just don't have the headspace to think about very much else. They're just trying to cope with the huge numbers of patients that need to be seen every day. So, 
I don't see those 6,000 GPs promised arriving anytime soon. And to some extent, we have to work with what we've got. And that's really what I said to council at my hustings last summer. What that means to me is I think, you know, as a college, our biggest asset are our members. We mm. have over 54,000 members, all of them working their socks off. And, you know, amongst that number, some have found solutions to the problems they've been facing. And I think that as a membership organisation, we should be able to network much more effectively than we have been doing so that we can share good practice, share ideas and innovations and encourage members to work together to actually find solutions to the situations that they're in um, wherever they are across the UK alongside that of course we are uh, using what work we can do influencing government and the NHS to think about retention strategies so we just held a retention roundtable uh, a week or so ago at which we discussed all the different types of retention strategy that are being introduced at the moment across the country again in a rather patchy non-unified way um, and one of the things that we're going to be uh, working on uh, because I think it's not just about encouraging more doctors into general practice it's retaining the ones that we've got um, and so we're going to be working much more on trying to influence the NHS and government to implement a national retention strategy uh, that is has, has more teeth um, than, than we have currently. We're also talking about bureaucracy and workload and administrative workload. There's an awful lot of paperwork that we're being asked to do that really doesn't require a doctor's qualifications to do. Mm. Um, so I think, again, we're listing all of these alongside our colleagues in the G GPC uh, who've done the same, um, and we'll be looking at uh, ways of actually quantifying how much time it takes in a doctor's working day. So again, we have more power to our elbow in our influencing work. Absolutely. Now, one of the keys to that strategy, that national retention strategy, as you say, you, uh, you have to keep the GPs that are already here, as well as encouraging new people into the profession. I know the issue of uh, inequality is very close to your heart. And we're not looking at patient inequality at the moment, we're looking at the inequalities faced by GPs. We have an international uh, workforce. That's going to be fundamental part of any strategy in terms of retention and, and indeed attraction, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, what we're finding is that some of our international medical graduate GPs are finding themselves really so harassed and so unwelcomed here that they're thinking of either returning home or leaving to go to Canada, Australia, New Zealand, uh, looking for better work-life balances. And we need to find ways to make sure that everybody is welcomed and valued um, because we really, really need every single one of them, as do our patients. Um, and I think that providing a welcoming atmosphere to all doctors, uh, particularly within the college. I suppose that's where our area of influence lies. But uh, hopefully that then acts as well as an example to the rest of the NHS, because I think that it is, um, as, as I was saying to you earlier, um, my parents were uh, first generation doctors in the late 1950s. And they stayed for a few years and then left um, because of discrimination, went to East Africa, came back 10 years later and have then stayed. But it is really sad to see the same story repeating itself 60 years on. It's a, it's a tragedy, really. Are there initiatives that you're seeing that are truly tackling that? 
At the moment, I'm not seeing a great deal. I think that there are induction courses and mentoring courses for incoming uh, GP trainees who are coming from abroad. And we know that almost half of our GP trainees are now international medical graduates, which is an astonishing number, really, particularly when you consider what a huge um, global workforce crisis we have. I've I've just returned from a WHO um, conference on global workforce issues, and um, they're predicting that by 2030 we're going to have 10 million too few healthcare workers in the in the, in the world um, and so of course you know as we bring them in from countries that very much need them we also have to consider what the morals are of, of doing that that kind of recruitment as well so it's about you know how do we both ensure that we have a good workforce for the people of this country but also give back to those countries who are uh, lending us their workforce as well. Um, you talked about, uh, since you became chair, expanding uh, uh, the, the GP workforce, increasing capacity. I know medical education is extremely close to your heart through your own professional uh, career at Swansea, uh, etc. One of the key elements of the strategy is to promote that, uh, have a look at the broadening roles that may be beginning to manifest in the primary care settings, um, associate uh, doctor role, primary care doctor role. Can we expand upon how important that's going to be for general practice and also, of course, the vision for primary care? Yes. So I think that that could be a game changer if it's done properly. It has to be done right. So first of all, we've got the expanding multidisciplinary team members, the physios, the pharmacists, the OTs, um, social workers, many others who are now joining primary care within GP teams as they never did before. Those members need to be inducted as well into primary care. Otherwise, they will end up just just performing what they've been professionally trained to do, but in a different setting, whereas actually what we need is for them to be doing it in a primary care setting, in a primary care way, in a way that will also remove some of the workload from from GPs. And at the moment, it's not happening to its best extent. What you were just asking me about, really, I think, was about SAS doctors in primary care. And again, there's been a lot of talk about that. Um, The GMC, of course, pointed out that the numbers of SAS doctors has gone up dramatically in this country and why couldn't they come and work in primary care now my feeling and the feeling of our college is that we should be welcoming these doctors into primary care but there are a couple of red lines that are very important first of all they do not take the place of general practitioners who are expert generalists in their own right. Um, Some of these SAS doctors, if they come into primary care, they may wish to become GPs Mm -hmm. and we should enable them to become GPs in due course, reaching the appropriate standards and getting a sort of CCT in general practice. Some of them may choose to stay as SAS doctors in primary care, just as they are SAS doctors in secondary care, and that should be their choice. Either way, as they come into primary care, they do need to have a proper induction. They need to understand how primary care works, how communities function, um, as well as how medicine works in a primary care setting. Um, And they will need some degree of supervision. And I don't think that they should be able to practice unsupervised by a qualified GP. So those are our red lines. But if we can keep to those, then we would be willing to engage and support this. At the moment, we're really not sure because we don't know the details of what NHS England is is wanting to do exactly. It's not been revealed to us as yet. But I think that, you know, we can then provide the guidance on supervision, the guidance on training, the maintenance of standards, which is really what our college is all about. So once again, the theme of collaboration is fundamental for that 
to work between primary and uh, secondary care. Switching to systems, um, GPs have an enormous amount of b- uh, burden that they have to deal with in terms of paperwork that you've alluded to. Um, one of the key elements in, in your strategy is to call for more investment and support for what look like rudimentary things but are fundamentally important IT systems etc can we expand about how important that is and what you're beginning to see on the ground so our um, GP member surveys which usually encompass between one to two thousand um, doctors so it's you know they're, they're reasonably chunky surveys are showing that many GPS feel that their IT systems don't communicate well with secondary care for example um, are very clunky they take a long time to warm up in the mornings um, and certainly if mine is anything to go by um, I, you know there are sometimes and I just cannot make the computer work at all but also if I'm then trying to find letters as opposed to pathology results I'm having to go in and out of different systems I'm having to log in to the hospital system in order to find certain results of patients who've just been in A&E and come out that sort of thing just all takes a great deal of time and it's quite it's quite clunky Um, having to go through all the letters in the way that we do currently is also very clunky in the pathology results so I think that there are um, you know very good ways in which one could if we had the right IT really streamline um, the work we do and go directly to where we want to be in terms of the information we need to deal with the patient in front of us. And that's very important in the context of the increasing workload. You talked about 340 million appointments. That's a 9% increase um, in a very short space of time. Yes, I mean, we're seeing well over a million patients a day, aren't we, in in England. And I think that uh, if we don't do something soon, it's going to get worse and worse, really. Um, And what worries me is that the current political party manifestos are all emphasising the importance of patient access to general practice. I completely understand why. Um, It should be easy for a patient to ring up and get through to their GP and then get to see the right person at the right time for the right thing, not necessarily the GP. But at the moment, that's not clear to patients at all. And I think a lot of people end up going around in circles trying to get through to um, a general practice with um, many practices having telephony that really isn't of the 21st century and isn't able to deal with the the workload that that we're getting currently. Thank you. We've talked about workforce numbers, we've talked about workload. I'd like to talk about wellness because that's, uh, I guess, a, a, a golden thread or a thread that runs through all of uh, questions of retention uh, and uh, efficacy in terms of practice. Um, the Health Foundation has produced an analysis of the Commonwealth Fund's survey of uh, 10 uh, nations, uh, up to 10,000 uh, GPs were surveyed. Now, the UK GP community seems to have um, plummeted in terms of its wellness, reported wellness levels over the last 10 years. What are you seeing on the ground from your members? How important is this issue, firstly, uh, and what can be done about it? I think it's hugely important. We know that significant proportion of our members have um, anxiety, mental health problems. Um, I think there is a great deal of fatigue um, as well, which again isn't good for your wellness. Um, Having said that, I am full of admiration for the way in which people keep on going. Um, And there are some really important gains that have been made um, that I try to trumpet in my um, fortnightly letter to members and fellows and AITs. Uh, For example, that the rate of uh, pickup of early cancer diagnoses is going up 
So, you know, GPs are doing something there. That's very good. Um, and the rate of prescribing for opiates is going down um, dramatically again, um, which is, again, a sign of, you know, somehow we are managing to maintain our standards. If anything, we're improving on them, you know, year on year. Now, coming to the point of mental health, um, yes, I think that there are huge problems there. I think that there is a real need for proper occupational health services for primary care and secondary care doctors. Um, and I think we also need to be talking a lot more about this, enabling people to talk about themselves as well, because I think as doctors, you tend to feel that you're somehow Superman or Superwoman, um, and you cannot talk about how you're feeling. Uh, and of course, that just makes things um, even worse. And I think, you know, the degree of moral fatigue that we've been experiencing as we constantly strive to um, look after our patients and find it more and more difficult to do so, you know, with systems where ambulances don't show up for six to eight hours and so on, um, is, is, a real, is a real strain on, on the workforce. Oh, absolutely. And I think um, just touch, touching upon that to, to wrap up, is that initiative going to come from a wider policy uh, intervention or are you seeing by dint of circumstance having to uh, a bottom-up approach where the GPs and practice are, are collaborating to at least tackle that in amongst a, a system that of course needs dramatic change we do need we do need both I think um, there needs to be an, an understanding and agreement from top down that um, more support needs to be given to maintain the well-being of its NHS workforce it's the whole NHS workforce not just the doctors um, but also bottom-up again as a college um, we're trying to build more and more on our membership networking so that we can start supporting each other even better than we do currently. Um, I'd like to end, if I may, on uh, taking a wider lens uh, across the whole of primary care. The long-term plan 2019 envisages a dramatic transformation in terms of delivery of care. I know tackling health inequalities is a personal um, mission for you. It's, uh, it's priority number three, I think, uh, for the new strategy. Can you see how we're going to turn the dial on this? Because this is a huge issue. There are multiple factors that affect uh, health outcomes, as we know. What's the role uh, of general practitioners in this? Because we're seeing greater disparities in health inequalities, which is itself another tragedy. So there's a lot of work to be done. Huge amount of work. I mean, we can see that the gap is widening and inequalities are getting worse, aren't they? Um, and I think COVID shone a light in a way perhaps that other things couldn't um, because it was the people who were worst off who were doing the worst as well from COVID. Now, I think that there's an awful lot that we can do as GPs, but we must always bear in mind that um, the vast majority of what we see is due to social inequality. And that in turn then causes health inequalities. So I think part of what we can be doing as a college is lobbying with other stakeholders in health inequalities and, and persuading government that they need to be thinking about social inequalities um, so that health inequalities can be improved. For us as GPs, there's quite a lot we can do in our practices. Um, there are ways in which we can be looking at um, the patients we have, digital technologies, making it much easier than it used to be so that we can actually pick out vulnerable groups and ensure that they're receiving the health care that they 
they should be receiving. Uh, also making our premises and our access um, accessible to everybody, uh, not just perhaps people who are IT savvy. And um, uh, and, I, and I think uh, as ICBs as well, there's an awful lot that we can be doing at that level too. So my health inequality strategy for the college is actually in those three tiers. What can you do as a GP in your practice? What can we be doing at ICB level as groups of practices and um, hospitals and working with social care and working with local councils? And then what can we be doing in terms of lobbying government and actually trying to influence the policymakers? And I guess uh, a subset of that is, of course, uh, you mentioned COVID. Um, there was a disproportionate impact of COVID from certain communities, particularly BAME communities. So part of the tackling the health equality will be back to this issue of understanding from a health point of view, the effect of these policies in the general community. Yes, absolutely. So this is really about, you know, every time you introduce a policy, you should have an, an equality impact review of what that policy is doing, you know, who's being left out and how do you make sure that everybody's um, being included, bearing in mind that not everybody starts from the same baseline. So it's really all about how do you bring everybody up to the same baseline and then make sure that they're getting the, the healthcare that they need. So there's an awful lot to be done there too. Uh, and I think I've seen too many uh, policies and processes brought out with very little thought for the more vulnerable sectors of our communities. Uh, and the final point, uh, you mentioned uh, earlier that uh, student numbers are increasing. Um, so as chair of the Royal College, um, are you filled with confidence and hope for the future despite these challenges? Do you know, whenever I meet a group of next generation GPs, so these are GPs who are either still trainees or have just qualified, I come away thinking if I was um, in their hands, I'd be so pleased because they're just such fantastic doctors and such fantastic human beings. So yes, I think, you know, um, having been head of graduate entry medicine in Swansea for three years and seeing students come through that system. So as medical students, um, full of altruism, full of um, hard work, uh, full of all the great qualities you'd want in a doctor. Um, yes, I have a great deal of hope for the future. And on that inspiring note, I'd like to thank you, Professor Hawthorne, uh, for giving us your time and sharing your wisdom today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. If you've enjoyed this episode of Voices of Care, please follow, like or subscribe wherever you receive your podcasts from. And if you want to understand how we are truly enabling the healthcare workforce of the future, please visit newcrosshealthcare.com forward slash Voices of Care. In the meantime, I'm Sahel Mirza. Thank you and goodbye.